the real estate industry on the whole suffers from an image problem. The bar to entry is super low. Last year, 90% of all real estate sold in the United States of America was sold by only 10% of the licensed agents. And in that, you're then having trust issues with people? Of course you are. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Lance Pendleton, welcome to Bridging the Gap, my friend. How are you doing? Good. Good to see you, Matt. Thanks for having me on board today. Yeah, man. And uh, and you're calling from Connecticut. So what part of Connecticut are you calling from? Because I've been there, but I don't know if I've been to the same area. It was nice, the one spot I went to. I, I am in the beautiful town of Redding, Connecticut. And Redding, Connecticut gets nicknamed the Vermont of Connecticut because we have no traffic lights. We have nothing. It's just basically like bears eating our pool floats. Like there's nothing exciting happening here. I didn't know bears like pool floats. That's interesting. I didn't either until you discovered that apparently when you go on vacation, come back and find all your pool floats shredded. That's what happened. They decided to go play. <laughs> oh, that's good, man. Well, I am, I'm stoked about this conversation. You know, doing the research for the podcast, I, I love kind of the holistic view that you have of helping people become better in their profession through understanding themselves and also filling some of their their gaps, right? And we're going to talk about them, like the executive function levels. I, I we were talking about before we start recording, you know, time management and and also just being a better person to make yourself a better salesman or woman. And I think that 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 mentality is is refreshing. And so I'm stoked to get into that. But before we get into that, I'm just curious, right? You you started Good Sphere and and you're starting kind of some more, more direct with LancePendleton.com. But, you know, was the 13-year-old Lance Pendleton, is this was like, you're like, this is what I want to go do. I'm going to go help people in the real estate world become better about themselves so they can be, you know, more community-oriented and sell better. And if not, what did the 13-year-old Lance Pendleton want to do? The 13-year-old Lance Pendleton's greatest aspiration at that point in time was to be the guy that drove the machine that picked up the golf cart balls on the <laughs> golf cart range because that was like the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And so, yes, no, the bar was not set super high on the young Lance uh, world. And, you know, look, people accuse me of being overly transparent. Uh, I, you know, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. Probably makes for a good podcast. But I grew up with an anxiety disorder. I never even knew I had. I didn't know what panic attacks were. So by the time I was 13 years old, like, I just knew I wanted to create mixtapes in my room for girls that I would never talk to. I didn't want to go out into the world and deal with anything and understand people. I knew that there were certain parts of my life that I was wildly uncomfortable with, but I had no idea actually how to go live in a world to try and find balance in myself or anything like that. Because, I mean, what do you know at 13 other than the fact that the coolest thing ever is try picking up golf balls on a golf course, you know, it's like other than that. I mean, I, I would, that would have been fun. I mean, if you're out there, I could try to, you know, it's always a fun thing to, to aim for when you're on the range. Right. It's like, how many times did you hit that guy? Exactly, right? exactly. Well, so tell us now then from, from 13-year-old self, and, and I, you know, I kind of want to dive into some of those challenges that you faced and that you, you found and how you overcame them. And I'm sure that's part of kind of the story and the journey from 13-year-old Lance Pendleton to where you are today. Tell us that journey. Tell us how you got to, to where you are today. So one of the, the key components of things that I talk about, and it's a, it's a big part of my story, is everything I have in my life is because of someone else. Everything I know and everything I have. There is nothing that I have in my life that isn't by the kindness of strangers or other people that have helped educate me on how to be a better person, how to do certain things. One of my all-time favorite quotes is, all wisdom is plagiarism, only stupidity is original. And that's important because for me, I genuinely value that I've made a career out of taking some of the best parts and pieces of knowledge I've learned from other people who have paid that forward freely and then been able to put some of those things into a more digestible and easy to understand language to help other people 
because my, you know, my journey was not normal. I struggled as I talked about growing up. By the time I got to college, I wasn't ready for college. I got thrown out of the only college I tried to go to. I took on a world of drinking excessively and partying too much and trying to mask all kinds of shame and lack of self-worth and things like that through basically drinking like a true rock star. Did everything except for roasting like live goats in a hotel room, Led Zeppelin style. But, you know, it was like I, that was the whole thing was, you know, living, living that life until I got to a spot where that was unsustainable and started to create and wreak havoc in me. So I, you know, again, was able to clean myself up, get sober and really start to take a look at like who I was, what I wanted to do. And I accidentally fell into what I do. I knew I loved helping people. I knew I, I, knew I loved working with people to help, especially in sales professionals, understand better how to communicate and connect to people. But what I discovered through that early on work was how much I really loved learning about the behavioral psychology of why people do what they do and how we derive better connection and meaning with people, which is where that then led into working with my previous endeavor, which was I was the national head of agent development for Compass Realty. So I work with 30,000 agents across the country, helping them better understand and develop those relationships and nurture them. I think that that's an interesting, when I have these conversations, I've been fortunate to talk to a good number of individuals and, and everybody has a different journey and a different process that leads them. But I, you know, that quote that you say, all wisdom is plagiarism, I think is, you know, the, those that have really reached massive success have all said that their, their success was built on the foundation of others. And it's very true here. You said you were working with Compass, 30,000 real estate agents, and, and you still focus a lot on real estate. I, I'm curious kind of what led you into that area because you because I haven't heard a ton of behavioral psychology into real estate. I've heard a lot of it making its way into wealth management, but not necessarily into real estate, but that makes a ton of sense because it's like th that's the, one of the biggest purchases anybody will ever make and there's a lot that goes into that from a psychological standpoint. So tell me what led you into that area and then I want to dive a little bit into behavioral psychology with you and, and learn more there. Yeah. I I was fascinated coming into the beginnings of real estate. So I had an opportunity to work for a company, but they said, look, problem is we'd love to have you come work with us, teach our folks how to be better salespeople, but you really should have a real estate license because otherwise they're not gonna believe a lot coming out of your mouth if you've never sold a house before. So I was like, all right, cool. So I, was, I went and got this real estate license and I spent a few months selling real estate and being in the mix of things and working in and around it. And my deal with them fell apart. Like mm -hmm. the CEO got transferred to something and I was like, uh-oh, and now I'm stuck being a real estate agent. I was like, uh-oh. But what I really loved and what I enjoyed was the people aspect of dealing with people that route. And I'll talk about that in a second of like why in that sales relationship like you talked about. But I started working my way up through helping other agents more than I was helping clients work within their client relationships and the problems they were facing and things like that. And at that point, again, I got a chance to go work for the largest Sotheby's Realty affiliate in the US and work my way through there to become the chief innovation officer for them. But for me, the the most fascinating part about real estate was sales professionals in real estate. Most all of their focus is directed at how do I make sure everybody knows that I'm an agent? And no part of that has anything to do with what the actual need of what the role is. Because as you said, it's, it's a huge purchase, but let's think about it. Selling real estate, buying, purchasing, selling a house is the third most stressful time in a human being's life right behind death and job loss. It ranks number three. Death, job loss, buying, selling, moving, okay? Then you're also dealing with the single largest financial asset most people have. So you're combining the third most stressful time in a human being's life with the single largest financial asset they have. And then you're taking an individual 
inserting them into that process to help manage and navigate that with them. There is nothing but behavioral psychology involved in all of that. The problem is, is that what an agent is taught in real estate, unfortunately, is completely ass backwards because in their view, all it is is about establishing your value proposition. And that value proposition is always presented for the most part as all of the knowledge that I have on stuff that in truth, most people believe intrinsically. I already know more anyway, right? I have the Google, like, you know, and it's like, even if they're wrong, they still believe they know more and they still believe they're right. So that's not where the real value comes into. So that's why we got into really working relationships with people. You know, let's dive down that path because I think there's so much correlation between real estate agents and their relationship with their clients and wealth managers and their relationship with clients because, you know, we're still dealing with the the biggest the biggest asset that they have which or that they're needing to have for retirement right and you have this uncertainty of what that looks like and you only really get one shot at it like with buying a house you get multiple shots at it yes you could lose money but retirement you really only get one shot because it's hard to be hired at the age of 70 or 65 it's just a hard market for that but when it comes to that standpoint, how are you helping? Because when I think about my real estate agents that I've had in the past, and I've had some good ones, and I've had some bad ones, mm-hmm. it's like, it's all about the agreement. Like, how, what deal are we going to put in? Like, how much are we going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, just give me the best deal. And you tell me, but like, right. and, and it's like, well, they want this. I'm like, well, I don't really want to pay that. And it's like, well, you should do it because the market, right. how do you, how, how can you give us some like depth into the psychological aspect of how you frame the relationship versus how people perceive it if they don't work with agents that you you work with. Yeah. So I love the scenario you just painted. Thank you for that. Because the one thing that you just said that was amazing was you talked about the financial aspect of it. You talked about the negotiation style of it. You talked about having to rely on them for their expertise in something to advise and guide you. At no point in time did you reference trust. You didn't say I trusted them. <laughs> you just said they're a necessary part of this deal because I have to have an agent, right? And don't even, like, we'll, we'll leave how messed up the real estate industry on the whole is in general. I had well, one agent I trusted. I have to put that out there because she listens okay. and it's my aunt. So I did have one I trusted, but that was because okay. of family. That was family. That That's was right. Family. But because you that relationship had been established where you knew something about the person, you'd had consistent communication with them. They trusted you right? And you trusted them in the nature of what that was. And you didn't believe that that person was only interested in you for what one thing. And what's that one thing? Closing closing the deal, closing the deal, right? I want that commission, baby. Yeah. That's where the deals fall apart. That's where things go wrong. So I don't care if it's, you know, working with people with their investments, if it's working with people and buying and selling a home, anytime that you are in a position of having to support people, you've got to change the mindset from that this is some type of a financial arrangement that we're coming together on because I'm profiting from this when it comes to such an integral part of someone's life. Buying and selling a car, financial arrangement, things like that, there's numbers a crunch, great. But whether I truly trust the person that I'm buying my car from, all right, there's elements of it, but it's not as permanent of a decision, let's just say, or has the effects long-term as you described. So honestly, Matt, it just boils down to trust. And if you can't be really good at establishing healthy relationships and, and, and actual trust, not perceived trust, with people, it, it doesn't really matter at that point in time anymore. Yeah, it seems, you know, the real estate world, and as I talk to other people about it, it feels that real estate industry is more transactional as opposed to relational. And I think that that's the, the challenge, right? It feels like, hey, we're just doing a transaction together, but it's a very expensive transaction 
sure. to say the least. And, and and so talking about trust, because I guess, how do you think about going about building trust? Like in my mind, I always think about it's like being vulnerable, it's transparency, it's, it's exposing about yourself to be fair and to be realistic of like who you are as a human, not just like as a business professional, to some extent, right? There's limits. Sure. But from your perspective, how do people go about building trust in something that is perceived as being transactional? Oh, great question. So let's start with your industry. Right now, what percentage of business annually is derived from people that you know or people those people know? As a, as a general industry, it's, it's greater than 60% likely, more like 75 probably. Cool. In real estate on average, it's almost 90% yeah. for good agents, right? So you're already in a business that is built, founded, and funded right off the bat by people that you know or people those people know. So let's start with that there. Yet, what is the way that we communicate with people? We communicate with them by trying to put out, hey, I can do this. Hey, I can do that. Hey, I'm good at this. And it's like all of this, you know, in real estate, my open house, my just sold, my new listing, the hot new car to paint your front door in spring, my newsletter, my newsletter. Nobody cares. They don't care, okay? Trust is developed and established by taking the beginning initial element of a relationship and investing more time in what those people care about than what I care about. And if I'm not looking at the outcome of the final product of did I close or transact with them, and I'm looking at what is my job. My job is to help someone. If I'm doing that part of it, the rest of it happens organically. Yeah. You know, so from like our standpoint in, in our firm, we see that the outcome that we're trying to get them is happiness in retirement, right? We want to create happy retirees. And so, you know, when you think about like a real estate agent in that world, the one sense of me is like, well, the outcome that the client wants is a new house. Is that it? Or what is what what should it be? They want safety, security. What is the deep desires that we truly want when it comes to buying a house? Well, again, it's what's so interesting was what you explained in your view, your perception as a consumer's perception of a real estate agent, right? Where you said it was a transactional thing. Yeah. Yet when you ask an agent what their role in it is, they view it completely differently, right? <laughs> So right off the bat, that's the biggest problem, you know? And it's like the, the real estate industry on the whole suffers from an image problem. The bar to entry is super low. Last year, 90% of all real estate sold in the United States of America was sold by only 10% of the licensed agents. That's a, a fact. And in that, you're then having trust issues with people? Of course you are. Because anyone and their mom, it's easier to become an agent than to become an Uber driver. Like it is. And so what happens in that, the good agents that have it the right way, that are the top performing people that do it well because they come from the right places, how are they presenting themselves to the world to establish trust by communicating the same thing that the 90% that aren't doing squat are? And so that I think is something that I think regardless of the industry, it's incredibly important that people, and especially for your industry, you have to not think about going an inch deep and a mile wide with people to try and capture as much as you can. It's about going, right, like an inch wide and a mile deep because you really need to have that level of trust that's organically established to build and grow from. Yeah, And yeah. it's not transactional. Like uh, buying and selling a house, I don't work, like I used to tell people when I was selling, one of my main things when people would be like, oh, why are you in real estate? Or like, Lance, you know, what makes you a great real estate? My The one thing I would say is, I'm the person you hire when you don't want to work with an agent. <laughs> The truth, because at the end of the day, you already know you have that perception of me. I already know you think all of that, right? I get it. I know where it comes from. Let me give you a different perspective of what you should think this relationship should look like, because I'm a consultant for you. 
I'm a Sherpa, I'm a guide, I'm the person that helps you navigate that mountain climb, right? And you get agents all the time like, I buy and sell houses. No, we don't. We don't. I can prove it. You ready, Matt? If I took a house and put the price super low, what happens to the house? It sells. What the hell does that have to do with me? (laughs) Nothing. It's just pure economics, right? My job is to help people navigate the third most stressful time in their life with their single largest financial asset. That's it, right? So like this perception and myth that exists, it's, it's got to change. I, I love that. I want to take a step back a little bit and talk about how you help your clients change this perspective. And it's more about looking internally. I, I know you mentioned, at least on the GoodSphere website, about looking at the whole person, not just their business creates longer lasting success. Mm-hmm. I love that, man. Like that is incredible. But explain to others what you mean by that. What does it mean to, to look at the whole person? Like what, what are people looking at? What are they missing when they aren't looking at the whole person? What does it look like when they are looking at the whole person? Most people, when they're not looking at the whole person, are ignoring the reality of who they are. Good and bad. Things that we have strong suits in, things that we're not that strong in. And for most people, there's this intrinsic drive to identify how do I change? How do I change me? How do I get better at this? There's always this constant drumbeat out there. We see all the social media and all the things about, you know, all the positivity and the changing your mindset and all that. It's like a stop. You know, some days you just need to get in the fetal position in the bathtub with a bag of Cheetos and sob yourself to sleep. Like that's a necessary thing for people. But if we don't talk about that and that's not part of the reality, right? Then like the hell's the point of it? And So a lot of what we talk about with people and helping them change how they engage in their business is by allowing it to be okay to let go of the myths. These just core beliefs that I need to be, you know, as we talk about being all things to all people at all times. I'm constantly moving in all the misspending plates and I'm trying to work with this person. I'm getting that person and the client called at 10 o'clock at night and I'm picking up the call even though I'm, you know, in the middle of a movie theater. Like, it's like that stuff. What we're trying to do is help people recognize that you can have boundaries, you can have limitations, that saying no is okay because that's respecting also who you are to bring it back down to be better at what you can do for somebody. People don't view that setting boundaries can be a value pop proposition for a client. Telling somebody in advance how I work, what to expect in the nature of our relationship. For example, what different types of communication are right? If this is going on, text me. If this is going on, you need to call me. If you're having big feelings because you had bad tacos at two o'clock in the morning, you can shoot me an email and after nine, I'll respond. Like there's different forms of communication, right? And so that really is at the root for most people. The first thing that we start to look at is just really focusing on what we call as is. Some things you're great at, some things you're not. Let's take a look at what the good things are, what the not so good things are, and then help you identify how to, rather than trying to work away from those things, practicing a little acceptance, around the parts that aren't great and move forward with some of the things that we are better at. You mentioned this idea of balance and I I love this idea of you can't be all things, all people, all the time. The world that we're in today has created this feeling that you have to be accessible every minute of every day and if you're not, then you're doing a bad job because if you're not responding to my email within an hour, it used to be 24 hours, now it's like 24 minutes then it's like, well, you're not paying attention to me. And so you mentioned this concept of balance needed for success and happiness. Like, what is that balance? How, how do you help someone that, that has this belief that I have to be 
so responsive. I have to respond at 9 p.m. when I'm playing with my little, my son or my daughter because it's, I got to do it. But in reality, that's not going to create happiness longer term for the future self because they're going to miss out on all these moments they never had. And so how do you help someone go and find that balance? And what does that balance look like to someone that isn't able to visualize that? So this is a great question. And you know we could probably spend two hours going through all the different formulas of how this plays out. Let me give you an example. When you call the doctor at 10 o'clock at night, does the doctor pick up? No. Okay. Do you get a message that says, if this is an emergency, dial 911? Yes. Those are boundaries. That's the first step to balance. We see, we teach people how to treat us. And if right from the very beginning of any relationship, you are saying, by the way, please, Let's go outside and get a wiffle ball bat. I'm going to lay on the floor and feel free to whack me as much as you want with it. Then that's what the expectation is, right? If you were to be able to say to somebody, hey, look, here's the best thing that you can do. If this is a real emergency, text me, right? If I don't respond immediately, it is because I am in something that I cannot be removed from, but I will get back to you in a timely fashion, usually between A and B. There are balance for most people is simply because their boundaries have gone out the, out the window. And boundaries is a, is a cute sort of fun buzzword these days of, you know, I'm establishing my boundaries. Well, sometimes that is true. And sometimes we're just using that to gaslight people. But what I try and look at in helping someone understand how to have better balance is accepting where is the imbalance first. It's very easy for me to tell somebody, hey, in order for you to have better balance, you know, eat well, exercise, but not everybody is adept to being able to get to a gym every single day. Not everyone has it within themselves because we're all built differently to be able to, you know, only eat grilled chicken five times a day and make sure they're counting their macros. Like I can't, you know, I wish I could, but I can't cause I love sugar too much, but it's kind of working with who someone is. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, it, the it, it does. And, but you know, and I, I can hear some of the listeners saying, well, but if I'm not responsive, if I'm not proactive or reactive to every need of my clients or my prospects, I'm going to lose business because someone else is. How do you respond to that? How do you know that? You see, you've never because, done it another because, way. Because Lance, it's because it's a feeling that I have that I know that they're just going to do it. You, sure. Our, sure. It's great. Great point. Our feelings facts. Lance, you just don't understand my business. My business is that these people are expecting a lot from me. Sure. So working with people who have 90% of transactional volume, and that's only 10% of the people competing against 90% who don't, I have no idea what it's like to be concerned that 90% of people are trying to take your business. I get it. The truth that you, we need to work on is why do you feel that way? Where does that anxiety come from? Is that based on reality? And by the way, I'm not saying say no to everybody for everything. Let's talk about when does that come up? When is it happening and what can we inject a little bit of to create a little bit more of balance? Most change isn't big. Most change is actually really, really small. Mm. Right? So if mm. you're struggling in that particular area where you just, it's boundary setting is really hard, give me the scenario. Like, let's talk through an actual scenario of what happened, when it happened. Is that, no, sometimes, yeah, you got to take the call. You know, there's really big deals. You might have someone that's a real great referring partner. They've been giving you tons of business. They're a wonderful human. Damn straight, I'm taking that call. But I'm going to be kind of sneaky here, Matt. You ready? Chances are, though, what type of relationship do I have with that person? 
You probably have a long-term, healthy, really good connected relationship with them. So it changes the dynamic. I'm talking about the folks that are sort of like brand new, toe in the water with me. They don't really know me all that well. If you're coming from that place of fear and you're setting that up, that is not, remember, people do respect how we work with them. It's mm-hmm. important. Yeah, there is, you know, there's something to be said. I, I remember talking with a workplace therapist on one of these podcasts. And, and you know, one of the things that we talked about was like, email away messages. Everybody hates putting email away messages because it makes them feel like like to the outside world that they're not working. And he's like, you know what? He's like, screw that. He's like, use the email away message to deepen the relationship by saying, hey, I'm away with my family in Disney World for the week and we're experiencing X, Y, and Z. I'll be back in touch. And he did that. And like, what happened is, is that then people were like, oh, enjoy your time at Disney. And the next phone call was like, hey, how was Disney? And like that is a relationship building moment and opportunity that is perceived as being viewed as lack of effort. And so it's just a matter of changing your mindset, as you allude to, to say, how do you make it to say, hey, you're just learning a little bit more about me in this period of time at that point, 100%. which is super interesting. Super, super true. So let's let, let's keep down this path, right? Boundary setting, I think it's also reactionary. We were talking about some executive function levels. And, and one of the things that came up that you mentioned of these executive function levels was time management. This is one of those things that all, all of us, doesn't matter profession, struggle with. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, I wanna dive into this. What, is, what defines someone that is a great time manager? And then let's discuss some of those steps that people can take to be more effective when it comes to time management. I heard it from Leonard Steinberg, who is a tremendous, exceptional real estate agent in New York. Uh, I don't know if it was his statement or someone else's. Remember, all wisdom is plagiarism, only stupidity is original. But Leonard said one time that time is the last luxury. We think about luxury commodities and luxury things in life. Time really is the last luxury. And when it comes to dealing with executive function and things, one of the main core areas that I see people struggle with the most particularly in around balance too, is time blindness. And time blindness is a, is a really important thing because we get pulled into something based on a lack of understanding priority. And that then begins to sort of take us away like a tide and pulls us away from operating in a way that allows us to identify what has higher priority, what has more meaning, and then what should I be working on from that there. So for some people, digital calendars and all the things and blocking every minute of the day works really well for them. A lot of the folks that I specialize in, they'll have the whole thing blocked out. And the next thing you know, they're on Zappos buying new shoes. Like it doesn't really matter what you put on a piece of paper, whatever is shiny, we're getting pulled away from and into. And so time management is to me, less about knowing how to create the time. It's more about prioritization and understanding what's most important. So I'll I'll kind of phrase it like this. It's the cart before the horse problem. People Mm. are always looking at blocking time for things. If you don't know what's important, then you don't know how long that thing should take. Therefore, you don't understand how much time to assign to it. And so there's certain behavioral life hacks and things like that that we talk about for people um, one of my favorite ones is, do you have stuff like Matt? You have, I'm sure you have things on the calendar that you do. Yeah. 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 Do you have anything that you do that's reoccurring on my calendar? Yeah. Meet with my EA every day. Okay. That's, that's the only recurring one. 
That's a reoccurring one. Do you ever have like business tasks though? Like follow up with new client X, Y, and Z or like. I have that on my task management system, not on my calendar. I have a recurring like content creation, certain content creation things. Yeah. Recurring. Okay, cool. Yes. A lot of folks put that stuff and they block like every Tuesday from eight to nine, I'm going to make my 500 calls today. And I love this one. Stop doing that. That's dumb. And here's why. Because your brain is wired to recognize that if you, something else comes up and you're not going to do that, you're already wired to know what it's going to show up again. So therefore it's not as important. What you should be doing is starting the week, looking at all the things you have in life, all the things that you have that are the movable parts, and then identifying where during this week can I put that mm. that's going to be more effective. Because I tell you right now, making 500 calls between eight and nine in the morning for me is not a good time for me to be doing that. I am not a morning person. This being the guy that runs literally a productivity and prioritization class, 8 a.m. every Monday. But that is not for the hundreds of agents. But that is not my best hour. Now, the West Coast feed at 11 a.m. that I do for the same class, by the way, those folks get a hell of a different show, right? But I don't, if I just had that there and I'm banging through it, I'm grinding it out, it's not respecting. Remember, we talked about like who I am, how I operate, try it differently. Start the week by taking that. And rather than saying, I'm just going to have this repeating, move it into spots where you're more likely to find better opportunity to engage with it more effectively. You, you just mentioned something about the planning. That's something that's actually changed who I am. I used to build out a calendar and block it, and it just never worked. It just never worked. And so now it's just a running list of all the things I need to do. And then every week I move over the ones that I think are the most priority based on what my week is. I look at my meetings, and then every night I just kind of pick out three to five to seven things based on how much time I have to work on things and, right. and when I time block it. But it doesn't work for everybody. And so you mentioned that you run a productivity and prioritization class. I, you know, because you mentioned like it's time management is about priorities. And I think that that's where people fail. So what are some frameworks that we can do to become better at prioritizing all the tasks that we have on our plate on a consistent basis? Another thing that I heard somewhere that I love was if everything's the most important thing, nothing's the most important thing, right? So I can't go into my week thinking, again, for a lot of people, a list is really overwhelming. They love making them. And then when they look at all of that, it feels overwhelming, partially because they know historically, I'm not going to get most of this done. So already we're kicking into a shame cycle. It's natural. The other reason is they're looking at this list and in their mind, all of it is equally important. So the work that I do with everybody on Mondays is we have a sheet that we work off of and we look at a couple different components, self-care, because believe it or not, you and I both know damn well, nobody prioritizes self-care. We don't even look at it. So we try and identify something good I'm going to do for somebody else this week, something good I'm going to do for myself this week, uh, something that I'm going to practice saying no to. Remember, busy being all things to all people at all times. Like we don't practice the art of saying, no, that's okay. The 12th cocktail party of the week, I'm going to take a pass on that one because otherwise I'm going to end up in meetings with Lance. And <laughs> the key here is then we move into prioritization. And the first step is 24 to 48 hours. You have to start with identifying what is highest priority based on time? Is there anything that needs to get done in the next 24 to 48 hours or bad stuff's gonna happen? The next way to look at it is to look at it from income producing or income protecting. Is this act that I'm gonna do something that is income producing for me or is it income protecting? And I'll give you an example. Taxes are income protecting. Like it seems like a dumb thing that I'm like, well, that has nothing to do with my business. Well, it is an income protecting thing that you're doing, right? Those two right off the bat, if you're looking at your list of all the things, 
That's how you begin to identify what becomes higher priority things that I need to focus on first. I also recommend for people too, that when you create this sheet, like you have these things mapped out, each morning it's just about looking to reassess if I've taken care of these two, what's the next 24 to 48 hour function? It, you gotta make it smaller because otherwise it's just a big ass list with a lot of stuff on it that can feel overwhelming. And again, we're setting ourselves up for an emotional problem and a lot of shame cycle that kicks in. We're like, historically, it's like, I don't use the term goals with people anymore. It's just not a good word for a lot of folks. Why? Because everyone gets excited by goals, but. But what do you use instead of goals? Outcomes. You're designing outcomes that you're working toward. If you have the outcome, great. If you don't, keep designing and working toward a healthier outcome. It takes all of the history that you've had with goals off the table. And, you know, a lot of that ties in, Matt, just so you know, into certain things, not to go too far off the rails, but a lot of that does tie into certain things that exist in the world now, like positivity and stuff like that. Like there is a thing called toxic positivity. It is a real thing, right? And a lot of the stuff we talk about creating balance in our life and how do we do some of this stuff, all that sweeps in. Because again, if I'm working on my goals and I've got my motivation and I'm drinking my kombucha and I'm doing all the morning, you know, affirmations and like Stuart Smalley said, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough and doggone it, people like me. Like I'm doing all these things and I basically have become, you know those inflatables in front of a used car sales lot? <laughs> the things with our arms up in the air that are just waving. I'm like, yay, everything is wonderful. It's like the old Lego, you know, everything is awesome. Yeah, that's not normal life. That's not healthy. And what you're doing is avoiding, right? So that's important. When we talk about balance and people really understanding Matt, like, guess what? I suck in the mornings. That's not a good time for me to do things. Let me prioritize and understand where I can put this to be most effective. Yeah, I like that. And I think that there's something to be said there as well as like not being outcome focused necessarily, but being process focused, right? It's not a matter of what the outcome is. It's a matter of like, are you, what are you doing in that journey of continuing there? And sometimes, because sometimes the outcome is out of our control. It's not always in our control, but if we took the steps, that's what's most important. And sometimes the outcome changes. Yeah, exactly. In mid-flight. So exactly. Now, before I get transition and let you go and uh, ask you the two final questions, I want to ask one more question. It's kind of random. You, you mentioned that at Sotheby's, you were the chief innovation officer. You know, this is something that I'm passionate about inside of our industry of innovation and, and the need to constantly push the envelope forward and constantly be innovating and and what innovation means. It's not just technology; it's people, processes, mindsets, all around it. What were things that you worked on, and what did you learn about innovation and how to be innovative? <laughs> <laughs> in that role. I love that response to that question. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I got to be careful here on this one. So to be clear, I was the chief innovation officer for the largest Sotheby's Realty affiliate, not Sotheby's international brand, just to be clear. Okay. And what I will tell you about what I learned about innovation in the real estate industry is there's not a lot of it. Most of what the brokerage world's life is, is about coming up with things to keep up with somebody else. Innovation in real estate is still during like the Reagan administration. Like there's just not a whole lot of change that's happened in there. And so therefore you are trying to undo years of training and thought around this model that is really antiquated. And so that's why there's been very little disruption that happens in a lot of that. You'd think it'd be ripe for it, but you know, innovation and what's most effective currently and what I've seen is it's not AI. It's not, you know, chat GPT. Innovation is in identifying the parts of process that are not working and then leveraging how you can call those out as part as a way of changing that. You know, 
that's a big component to it. It's not saying this is bad. It's saying this part is broken. Here's how we do it differently. Because that's, to me, that's the biggest part of innovation that's missing in the work that I used to do. And, you know, coming out and talking about what it is, as I said, like, just think mm-hmm. about how we talk about real estate agents. Your perception is completely different than an agent's. You know, NAR puts out stats every year, the National Association of Realtors, and they, they survey thousands of consumers. And in the last survey they did, only 3% of consumers cared what brand or brokerage the agent was with. 3% care about what brand or brokerage the agent is with. And yet every agent under the sun goes into a listing presentation with these booklets about, you know, the brokerage does this and we have international buyers from, and we're all AI tech powered and nobody cares. Why? Because what are they buying? Consumers buying trust, the relationship, you, your advice, right? But why don't we talk about that? That's off limits. That's innovation is identify the problem and let's shift, make it more about the individual, less about the brand. One organization I talked to that had a really good focus on that, and they, they kind of call it untying the knot, right? Looking at all the processes and like where and getting everybody in the organization and what they do every day and the value that they provide and the way that they provide that value and the way that it's received, where in each of those areas can we untie the knot and make it a little bit better, right? And, and if you can get your whole organization thinking that that truly is like innovative from that standpoint. It's it's encouraging that, that real estate's so far behind. I think wealth management's getting a little bit further ahead and we still got a long way to go, but it, it's not like we're fighting a battle that nobody else is fighting. So that's always good. Lance, this has been super fun, man. I think we could probably talk for hours. I, I, there's so much more I could learn from you and your journey. And I think that our listeners could, but you've got to go make your impact uh, on your clients. Before I let you go, though, I've got two questions I'd like to ask everybody on the podcast. I'm a constant learner. I love, I'm curious. I love to learn from people that are much smarter than me. And one way I like to do that is through reading. So I always ask my guests, you know, what's one book out there that you think everybody should read if they haven't or reread if they have already read it? Ooh man, I am a big fan of, and you're gonna you're gonna get the uh, the bleep button out. But I'm a huge fan of the subtle art of not giving a fuck. I I think that's a mandatory read that everyone should probably have at some point in time because again, anything that helps you talk about balance, slow things down, separate out feelings aren't facts, right? That myth from reality of like it's all gonna be fine. It, with this constant need for self improvement, constant need that I'm somehow defective of how I am. It's just it's got to stop, like. Everyone just needs to take a big collective breath. It's going to be fine. I will second that book. That was a, a, an amazing one as well. And then the last question is, we talked about so much here and so much of value. And I always like to leave our listeners with something of action that they can take and implement tomorrow to make themselves, their business, uh, whatever may be better. What do you hope that one piece of actionable advice our listeners take away from our conversation here today? Um, I'll give you just a, one that's served me well. In my notes app on my iPhone, for years now, whenever I hear someone say something, a quote of something that I find interesting, motivating, compelling, funny, something, I write it in the notes app. And when I'm feeling stuck, when I'm feeling crappy, when I'm feeling like I don't, I ain't got it this in me today. Like I can't take one more zoom meeting with one more person yelling at me for something. You know, it's like, I go back and I look at some of that stuff and there's always something there over the years that's reminded me of, huh? Okay. This isn't permanent. And I always tell people, if you can get into the habit, it's like gratitude. People love gratitude journaling. Gratitude's not about, I'm grateful for my family, my, you know, my health. My, those are big things. You know, my buddy Barry had a gratitude list. Same thing, notes on his phone. And he handed it to me one time and I looked at it. I'm like, Barry, like, this is your shopping list at Target. What the hell is this? And he's like, no, no, it's my gratitude list. I'm like, it says spatula. Why the hell is there a spatula here? And he was like, you ever try and flip an egg without one? <laughs> 
And I was like, that's damn smart, Barry. Like, I get it now, right? <laughs> have something where you ha- keep a place where you can reflect on certain things when things aren't going well, right? When you've got that client that you had right to the edge, you took them all the way to the promised land at the last minute they pulled out. You're like, Jesus God, like, I can't know how many more times. Go back into those spots and, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't hurt. I got mine in front of me right now. Winnie the Pooh. People say nothing is impossible, yet I do nothing all day long. <laughs> Wisdom. Wisdom, right? I love that. That is, uh, take that one and run with it. I, I think that that's super amazing and inspirational. Lance, dude, I really appreciate, you know, this is our first time meeting and it's just a super awesome conversation and you're a great, great person and great human. And uh, I appreciate you taking time to join us and share some of your insights here. I know more people, I'm going to continue to follow you. I know more people will as well. What's the best way for people to stay in touch and continue to follow you? Yeah, questions, you can jump on LancePendleton.com. You can follow me on Instagram, Lancelot Pendleton on Instagram. And Matt, thank you, man. I really appreciate taking the time. I, this has been a lot of fun and I really appreciate allowing me a, an opportunity to use a little uh, plagiarism for everybody. Hey, man, you are, you're awesome. Continue the great work and best luck as you continue forward, man. Thanks again. Thanks, bud. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 